It's a really special place in that it is really wild, one of the last truly wild places. It's also still a working landscape where humans live here, living off and, and with the land. All of our experiences of, of living and working in this wild landscape makes it really important for people to bring their real life experience into the room so that we can work together. While we try to increase the Earth's capacity, we increase our own capacity for learning and partnership. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges and what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the film series, Life in the Land, in their entirety. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. In this episode, we're speaking with Rebecca Ramsey, Executive Director of Swan Valley Connections, an organization with a mission to inspire conservation and expand stewardship in the Swan Valley. The Swan Valley is in Northwest Montana and is part of the crown of the continent ecosystem, which is one of the last intact large landscapes on the planet. Rebecca does such a great job of describing the geography, biodiversity, and communities of the Swan Valley that I'll let her share that with you herself. Swan Valley Connections is a locally led organization and really dials into the holistic values of stewardship, of connecting people to their environment in ways that directly benefit the health of the local communities. In this conversation, Rebecca shares with us about the critical nature of listening to folks on the ground within rural communities and successes and challenges of working with varied interests, which creates insight for those of you thinking of applying this approach to your own work. We spoke with Rebecca in the summer of 2021 on the banks of Elk Creek in the Elk Creek Conservation Area, which Swan Valley Connections co-owns with the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes. Later in the conversation, Rebecca will share about this important partnership. Swan Valley Connections, our mission is to inspire the stewardship of the Swan Valley. We really aim to connect people and the natural world through providing educational opportunities for people of all ages and through working with private landowners and our agencies uh, to coordinate technical and financial assistance to do projects on the ground. We also provide visitor services on behalf of the Flathead National Forest and Lolo National Forest. We help to really increase the capacity of our resources for them to be resilient in the face of change, as well as uh, to inform and increase the resiliency of our human, wildlife, plant communities, and the agencies and other NGOs helping them to meet their objectives and increase their capacity by really being the people on the ground who know this landscape and are deeply vested in it. And for those who have never been to this region, how would you describe what makes this place unique, both in its geography and in the people who live here? So the Swan Valley is located between some of the most iconic wilderness complexes, the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex, 
uh, to our east and the Mission Mountain Wilderness Complex to the west, which includes the first tribal wilderness in the, the Mission Mountain Wilderness of the Mission Mountain Range. We are roughly an hour and a half north of Missoula and an hour south of Kalispell, hour and a half sort of south of Glacier National Park. So we are really in the southwest crown of the continent ecosystem. The Swan Watershed is the wettest in the state of Montana with 16% surface water and more than 4,000 wetlands. Because of all of that connectivity and we have 93% public land and so that allows for a lot of rare animals and plant species to exist here, uh, including kind of the full suite of Montana carnivores, including grizzly bears, wolverines, mountain lions, lynx, bobcat, and a, ho a host of other animals that have mostly free movement. So it's a, it's a really special place in that it is really wild, one of the last truly wild places in the lower 48, arguably. And it's also still a working landscape where humans live here, have businesses here, are logging here, living off and, and with the land. The people here are unique because it's a, it is a wild place to live. It's not easy. Um, we have some real extremes in, in weather and uh, just, just living with those major carnivores and uh, how to coexist with them. And the people here are sturdy and independent thinkers and also always come together as a community whenever it's needed. The way that Swan Valley Connections was initially formed came from a lot of impassioned people who were seeing, seeing the changes happening here in Montana, uh, across Montana with development, um, primarily residential development. And originally, so the, the Swan Valley was one of the last places in our state that was homesteaded. And it was so hard to prove up here because of the dense forests and the amount of wetlands and it wasn't very conducive to agriculture. So the US government gave every other section of land to the railroads in order to try to develop it. Um, that didn't work out and, and ultimately the railroads sold to a timber company that ultimately then ended up Plum Creek. In the 1990s, Plum Creek Timber Company, which at the time was the largest private landowner in the country, transitioned into real estate development and began listing tens of thousands of acres for private development. The threat of subdividing and habitat fragmentation and the high-impact methods of logging being used at the time brought together unlikely partnerships of residents and groups with varied interests including loggers and conservation advocates, who were all concerned about the sustainable future of the region. After years of public and private efforts from grassroots level to national, a deal was reached in 2008 for the remainder of Plum Creek's lands. This came to be known as the Montana Legacy Project and put over 310,000 acres in the greater region of western Montana into primarily public lands and conserved spaces. The success of the Montana Legacy Project was dependent on the collaborative groups who had already been working for years in the region to build a culture of shared stewardship, watershed by watershed. 
You can find a link to more info on this project in this episode's show notes. Rebecca goes on to explain how Swan Valley Connections formed out of collaborative work that was a key component of the Montana Legacy Project. Uh, There were loggers who were concerned that they were not going to have a sustainable future. Um, There were recreationalists and conservationists that were concerned about what that looked like. Simultaneously, uh, there was uh, the recovery effort for wolves and grizzlies. And uh, so these concerned citizens all came together and uh, they called themselves the Ad Hoc Citizens Committee. And uh, there was a large donor that uh, hired a facilitator. And from that effort of of people of um, lots of diverse perspectives coming together, grew two organizations, Northwest Connections and Swanee Ecosystem Center. They operated doing uh, research, monitoring, education, land conservation, uh, working with school children, and and kind of they they were working simultaneously and often working for and with one another. And so there was kind of a natural uh, urge to merge, which happened in 2016, and that's Swan Valley Connections as we know it today. As the work of Swan Valley Connections is centered around the overall theme of healthy coexistence, collaboration is a large part of their work. I ask Rebecca about what she's experienced with approaches that work best for this work and realistic challenges. I've been really fortunate to have been exposed to uh, the successes of collaboration and collaboration isn't easy because all of us have an opinion and and all of us have our own thoughts and baggage that we come to the table with. we need to have the patience to unpack it. And curiosity is really key uh, to to come together with curiosity and recognizing that if we're all interested in something enough to be passionate enough to to come together or to get angry or to get excited, uh, that means that we have 80% in common. And so if we can find that 80% that we have in common, and, and build trust through that and really being willing to find strength in our vulnerability, putting out there what we don't know, putting out there what we're afraid of. We can then open ourselves to hear those other perspectives and together we can come together to find solutions or at least directions in which we can, we can all work towards uh, to, to find some sort of middle ground. And it's really, I think from, from the middle that you can get the most work done. In order to do that, I think that you have to create a setting in which people can feel comfortable sharing openly, feeling like they have a, a, a somewhat safe space to be. And that, that takes a lot of time. And time is probably the, the biggest obstacle. Um, because relationships, you can't force a relationship to happen. It's all about relationship building and trust and nurturing that. That spirit that you're bringing to the table. Do you have a spirit of cooperation that you're willing to work with? Do you really want to find solutions or are you there to be an obstructionist? Can you let go of, of your fears, a scarcity mindset to shift into that of, of abundance? Can we have an abundance of, of whatever it is that we're looking for. And I think 
humans all really want a lot of the same things, you know, security, safety for their families, food, shelter, that sort of thing. And if we remember that we're all animals, animals are looking for all the same things, you know, and, and so that's an, that's an easy one to, to try to find the common ground with. And then being willing to learn together in public is really key, you know, and just remembering we're all learning and even science is constantly evolving because none of us know everything and as conditions change, so do the things that we know. And that's part of the need for collaboration. By bringing our experiences and sharing, we can all learn and create a better product or a better end result. One of the things about the Swan too is we are a headwaters into the Flathead system. And Montana as a state is the headwaters to the continent. Water's our most precious resource. And I think because we're in the wettest watershed in the state, we maybe don't think about that. And the other headwaters into that, that Flathead Basin have been protected. Uh, it, they're either national park or they're wild and scenic riverways. They, you know, they, they have protections. The swan is not protected in the same way. So I certainly see that as, as one of our opportunities, you know, and, and I came from the school of thought that uh, education is really important. Regulation is a tool, but education is, is something that is organic. I think that that's one of the things that Swan Valley Connections, we, we're unique in that way in that we have so much educational opportunities about any number of, of topics because they, they all come together. We're all in this incredible web of life and I think about why is this place that has so few people and so little private land, so little opportunity for development, why should we care? And I think it's that connected piece and I see the swan as almost of a, a control in a science experiment where we have the opportunity to demonstrate what healthy waterways look like or healthy little micro ecosystems that exist here. It really is a classroom where there's a lot of opportunity for learning, both for restoration techniques and, and what something healthy looks like. While we try to increase the Earth's capacity, we increase our own capacity for learning and partnership and cooperation. And with that, you know, it's a lot of what you're getting at as well and what you're speaking to. What is the importance of kind of repairing or at least strengthening our relationship with what's going on in the landscape and being more in tune with what's going on and, um, you know, becoming more intertwined? You know, I'm sure residents who live here, you have no choice but to be connected with the landscape, you know, with weather and wildlife and everything. But for folks who might just see, you know, connection to the landscape as something like recreation or, you know, something people do when they go out to the mountains um, on vacation or something. Why is that important for us to connect with our landscape? So I know I am not a scientist, but I know that there is a whole scientific body of work that demonstrates 
why it's so important to connect to nature for human health and well-being, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically. I think that humans have been disconnected from the earth for a really long time, really losing our instincts. And I think that started, you know, way back when uh, we started turning into an agrarian society. So we started to evolve into uh, engineers in which we thought that we were making the land work for us, but we have been resistant to, to working with the earth. And, and now it is our uh, agricultural producers, small family farmers are some of the most connected. I think that we who seek recreation in the outdoors um, are seeking that connection. I think that's so deep within our beings that we really, we need, we need that. And that's why we need wild places where we can get back to our animalistic self. There's an influx of people, I think that we saw during the pandemic, where people really uh, from cities or congested areas, where did they go? They, they sought recreation, they sought wild places, they sought places that could fill their soul and give them the exercise they need mentally and physically um, and, and allow themselves to, to find what's real and true. Plants, water, animals, that's all just, just truth and they're all present and, and we really need that opportunity. And so being present and being in the elements uh, allows you to do that. In our, our neighboring Salish tribes, uh, in our office, they gifted us with their wheel of the year. And they traditionally have, have went through those cycles of the year, you know, naming, uh, the, naming the moons of the month uh, after different natural occurrences or things that happen during that season. And I think we have a lot to learn from that. You know, if we, if we just allowed ourselves to let go of the materials and the things and, and just thought about what is it that maybe really matters. And I think that's why it's important, why there's so many groups and agencies that are out there to try to restore uh, and, uh, and allow that connection to nature. We all have a role to play in that because what, whether we acknowledge it or not, we're all a part of that interconnected web of life. Every blade of grass, every macroinvertebrate, every micro species is, is connected, you know, to the, the big, the megafauna and flora that we think about. The fact that a grizzly bear relies on a tiny huckleberry so much is pretty dang amazing, you know, and we're, we're all, we're all in it together. And can you speak a little to um, the significance of working landscapes? Um, in this area, that's a lot mostly with timber and uh, recreation, but just those methods of interacting with these landscapes. For folks who may not be from rural locations, why the existence of working landscapes is important, you know, rather than just cutting off all human contact with wild spaces, also for these rural communities to survive and kind of all the interconnections of how those things are held up together. Yeah, so humans have been on the landscape for tens of thousands of years. 
And so when I think of working landscapes, it's not just a ranching community or a logging community or a recreational community. To me, a working landscape is, is where people are uh, living, working, making a living alongside the natural world. And so, you know, the, inevitably, there is a, a need for humans to live rurally as well as in the cities. Uh, the rural communities, so in, in this case, our community developed really uh, a lot around logging and there are some small-scale uh, small ag producers, there are recreational businesses, and, and there's, there's a need because all of those cater to the other population centers that maybe are in cities around the nation or around the world. We are not, we're not disconnected from them. We are just a less number of people. We, we're providing services. They, they're coming for respite. So ultimately, we're all interconnected and we flow out to the cities for the things that we can't get here. They flow into our communities for the things that they can't get there. In what seems to be a particularly divided time, I think we think of ourselves as us and them, rural versus city. No, we're not versus. We're, we're all in it together too, and, and there's, that, uh, there's that balance, that necessity. Um, and I think it's just where, where are we in our comfort zones? And I think that's part of the curiosity that we need to bring to the table. I've lived in rural Montana for 23 years and in communities as small as 150 and as large as whoo, 750. And so uh, when I go to the city, it, it takes a lot to sometimes to not be overwhelmed, but I turn that into curiosity. And I think that when folks come out here and, and getting to see visitors from all over the world that stop in, I think they have their own anxieties and, uh, and it's fun to help them turn that anxiety into curiosity. And, and if we all just gain better understanding, we can remain in our comfort zones and have appreciation for each other's environment and, uh, and provide each other support and realize that we, we do have so much more connection than we recognize. I ask Rebecca where she sees the value in local voices being present in the decision-making of what takes place on the landscape here. For places like Swan Valley, this is especially key as there are no incorporated towns. So while there are community councils, a lot of the decision-making can take place at a county level. Much of the Swan Valley is within Missoula County. Missoula is one of Montana's most populous cities. So if you've been to the Swan Valley, you know that the needs and realities are very different than the majority of the county's population. It's really important for people to be present in, in decision-making opportunities, being a part of public comment periods, being on governor-appointed committees, being on city councils, being, uh, or, or community councils in our case, just being, being present at the table. Nobody knows a place better than the people who live and, and work there. A lot of our uh, decision-making happens in places that, you know, maybe have never seen or experienced what we experience here. 
even at the, at the county level, we work hard to get our county elected officials to come out to the far reaches of the county out here because it's very different than it is in the heart of Missoula, for instance. Um, and we're located mostly in Missoula County. So I think that all of our experiences of, of living and working in this wild landscape uh, makes it really important for people to bring their real life experience, their knowledge, their passion into the room so that we can work together to, to get to the root of, of whatever it is, especially when it comes to creating regulations. It's not appropriate to not have the people that are living there uh, not being a part of that decision-making process. Having our own autonomy as a rural community, and I think that uh, one of the things that we teach in our landscape and livelihood and wildlife in the West uh, college courses, we really uh, talk about how policies impact human communities and what is it really like to live with species that are on the endangered species list uh, or are species of concern. The policies are necessary and it's also necessary to have those voices. Even when you think about grizzly bear management, for instance, the bears are really different on the Rocky Mountain front versus the greater Yellowstone ecosystem to Libby, to Condon, to being close to a city. I think that the uh, governor's Grizzly Bear Advisory Council really brought together all of those different voices to make recommendations. And I think that if we started thinking about uh, creating policies from the ground up instead of from the top down, we'd have a lot more effective policies. I've always thought maybe instead of having a variance for, for blanket policies, if we could figure out a way to have site-specific visits that regulations were then sort of crafted around, uh, we might be more successful. I ask Rebecca about what a changing climate means for the Swan Valley and where she sees the value in focusing in for adapting for both people and the ecosystem they're a part of. Changing climate is real. I, I just can't imagine that anyone can deny that we're seeing major, major changes over time. And those, those changes that have been predicted, we're, we're seeing manifest. In a forested community like this, I think we certainly uh, we anticipate the, the risk of, of fire where fire had traditionally been used on the land and, and all of our species here, these are fire dependent species. And those were small fires regularly that would run through these forests. Now with having big mega fire complexes, that's the potential to really impact habitat of some of these native animals, native species that have been here. And I think that there's a real need to continue to fund research and monitoring uh, to, to add to the data that we have so that we can maybe come up with solutions and we can demonstrate and create policies, inform those policy decision makers uh, about what's, what's really happening on the ground. I certainly think that as a, as a headwaters where we are provi providing source water uh, for human communities in addition to certainly the, the plant and animal communities, if we can continue to see these, these major droughts like we're in currently, 
these streams could dry up too. And we really need to be conscious that our groundwater and surface water is interconnected. I think as the, the climate is changing, as we see climate refugees that want to move into these wild places that have an abundance of water, without careful planning and acknowledging that ground to surface water connection, we run the risk of, of running out of water. It's not an infinite resource. One of the projects that we've been involved in for 10 years has been rare forest carnivore monitoring that's focused on lynx and wolverine. Lynx are a real specialist species. They are a snow dependent species. You can see in the way that they have evolved with their snowshoe like paws and more than 90% of their diet is snowshoe hare that has also evolved as a snow dependent species. We, we got to work with, in partnership with Dr. John Squires at the Rocky Mountain Research Station, who did a three-year study on the mega fire complexes um, south of here with the Liberty and Rice Ridge fire outside of Sealy Lake to see how it, and if lynx and wolverine were using those spaces that they had been traditionally uh, tracked in in our previous work. We saw how, how were those animals using those fire complexes that can help us to predict what maybe can happen to those populations in the future. Lynx, frankly, are, are the proverbial canary in the coal mine for climate change because they are so intrinsically tied to snowpack, deep snowpack. There's so much that we don't know about so many species and, and what can they tell us about climate change. And I think that the need to learn to continue doing that research and, and monitoring that augments the research is to inform ourselves about how do we remain resilient? Um, because humans are not designed to live at I think it was 130 degrees they recorded in Death Valley. We didn't, how can we keep ourselves from becoming a Death Valley? How can we keep ourselves alive in addition to all the other species we need to be alive? It's about adaptability. I'm a real believer in, in trying to uh, nurture our adaptive management skills. Change is constant. We, we can't resist it, but how can we help to guide change? How can we be resilient in change? How can we adapt to change? And uh, we know humans are a very adaptive species, like coyotes, foxes, who have adapted to living in urban environments. How can we become adaptive and how can we preserve the specialists? We're all here, uh, no matter what your species, to learn and, and teach one another. If that's the one thing that we can all get behind and gain by acknowledging climate change is happening, how can we have some sort of a positive effect? How can we adapt to it? Rebecca shares about the area where we're standing, having this conversation, the Elk Creek Conservation Area, and the story of partnership that it encompasses. We are on what we call the Elk Creek Conservation Area. It is a piece of, a full section of land, 640 acres, that Swan Valley Connections owns and manages in partnership with the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes. 
It came about in 2006 when Swan Ecosystem Center at the time was raising funds and identifying what was the most critical conservation pieces in the Swan watershed in an attempt to protect those pieces from development. So this was really pre-Montana Legacy Project. So um, as they were fundraising and, and identifying, they identified this section of land as the most conservation critical because Elk Creek is the primary bull trout spawning tributary in the whole Swan watershed system. They enlisted the help of some other organizations like the Trust for Public Land and uh, various other nonprofits and then also uh, simultaneously approached the Confederated Salish Kootenai tribes understanding that bull trout is uh, culturally significant as as is water very culturally significant to the tribes and uh, wanted to offer a partnership offer opportunity to them. Ultimately, they all came together to get the funds together and purchase this piece of property. And with it, Bonneville Power put a conservation easement on the whole property. And as it all came together, there was a, a mandate that they all agreed to, to perpetually manage this piece of property together in partnership. And uh, that gave the opportunity to, again, share those different perspectives of uh, you know, what, what the tribes, when they think about conservation, it's, it's different than our perspective. I think the, the white, if you will, for, for lack of a better word, or, or what we know of the conservation perspective is oftentimes about productivity or about recreation. And, and they're thinking about it from a much older, more holistic, multi-species sort of, of level, you know, about that sort of connected connectedness of, of the humans and the animals and the plants. So it's, it's really interesting. We have a management plan in place where uh, always working together to try to improve this piece of property, whether that's uh, to manage invasive species, to increase the, the diversity of the native plant species, to always keep this waterway clean, cold, connected, complex, allowing it to utilize its full floodplain by not building any structures ever on this property. Uh, and really using it for educational purposes and, and to just really connect and, and let it be its wild, beautiful self. The Elk Creek Conservation Area is in the shadow of the Mission Mountain Range. The, the peaks of the Mission Mountain Range and then the west side of the range are all part of the Flathead Reservation. And so we're, we're on the other side of the mountains from the reservation. But this land, we, we all reside on stolen land, quite frankly. And, and so that was part of really wanting to reach out to the tribe for this, this opportunity to own and manage land together, even though it's not uh, part of the reservation, it is considered you know, partially tribally owned land. Historically, uh, what I know about this place, and, and I am no expert in 
uh, part of Swan Valley Connections values is valuing traditional indigenous knowledge and trying to incorporate traditional ecological knowledge into all of our work and so we are constantly learning. What I know is that Condon is in the Salish place names. Various tribes from the uh, Salish, Kalispell, Kootenai, Blackfeet, Métis have all come through this valley hunting and fishing, used it as a gathering place. Uh, and I know that the Salish name for, for Condon meant, uh, had to do with fire uh, on this landscape. And so they have traditionally managed and, and used this landscape for, for all of time. We feel like we're in a really unique position to be located where there's a tribal nation on both sides with the, the Blackfeet nation to the east and, and the Confederated Salish Kootenai to the west. So we feel like we're in a, a really uh, unique cultural place as well and uh, look forward to continuing to learn and, and bring those learning opportunities to a greater public. I think it's important as we move forward for us to continue to expand our worldview and expand what we know. I think if we just acknowledge that we don't know everything and that we are here to learn and give equal opportunity to learn from science as we know it and to learn from traditional ecological knowledge. Just as we were talking about that value of having rural community members at the table, there's a value in having tribal community members at the table. Their knowledge runs so deep and is so connected to this landscape that it's really important to in incorporate them as much as we can into our organization, our organization structure, our educational opportunities, the work that we do. And I think uh, it, it's, n I'm not saying that any one tribe has all of the answers. I think that we just have a lot that we can learn from one another. In my work, what I have been taught is listening, listening with an open mind, listening, being present, listening to, to really understand and not to, to just come up with your next answer. And I think that by inviting those indigenous perspectives in to our work, again, we can have a much more holistic uh, product, holistic experience, and we know we colonial settlers came and, and, and we are here. And so how can we live more harmoniously and, and honor those that came before us? Uh, just as we work really hard to honor the animals on the landscape that were here before us and live harmoniously with them, I think, frankly, we're, we're overdue in honoring and, and, and living in more of a, a community with indigenous peoples as well. I think that's just, that's just part of our, our work. We're trying to expand our perspective so that we're practicing what we're preaching, you know, and, and I think that that's really the, the key to collaboration and, and why it's so important. And I feel very grateful to be in this region to have that opportunity to reach out to 
you know, these, these tribal nations. Since we're all in it together, we all need to, to be at the table together. And I think as an organization, ours and, and others, it's also really important to not just have one tribal member or one type of person. So not just, uh, not just any one belief system, not just one, any one color, not just any one age, not just any one gender, um, all of that. It's all important because we all belong. We're all a part of this earth and we're all a part of conserving it. And so how can we, um, how can we draw ourselves together um, to increase our own capacities and, and again, increase the capacity of the earth? In other podcast episodes from the Sealy Swan segments of the Life in the Land series, you can find an episode where we hear from the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes Forestry Division, as well as from Tim Ryan, a Salish cultural educator who leads the Mission Mountain Youth Crew to connect youth from the Flathead Reservation to professional and cultural education opportunities on the landscape. That program is put on in partnership with Swan Valley Connections. Rebecca walked with us along a stretch of Creekside in the Elk Creek Conservation Area, showing us some of the habitat restoration that Swan Valley Connections and the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes lead in this area. They host educational opportunities here for all ages, including in the college course that Swan Valley Connections hosts, as well as community citizen science or volunteer days, and for the Mission Mountain Youth Crew. She shows us the work they do with volunteers to install riparian fencing, which is temporary fencing that they cycle in different areas to prevent ungulates, primarily deer, from getting to a certain stretch of creekside so that varied generations of trees and other vegetation have a chance to become restored. Then when the vegetation grows to a more resilient stage, the fencing is removed and relocated. I ask Rebecca what we're seeing here that indicates a healthy riparian corridor. First of all, I guess a, a riparian corridor indicates uh, the area that is near a free-flowing stream. And uh, what indicates that that's healthy is the clear, cold, connected, and complex systems. And so uh, some of the complexity that you see in this particular area includes this downed woody debris, downed trees that you can see um, where there's root wads that provide some holding cover uh, for small fish um, as, as they're growing. You can see that there's a lot of different types of, of trees and shrubs that are all along the riverbanks that really holds the the riverbanks in place and, and uh, doesn't allow too much sediment to push through. Um, you can see in the middle, like on these gravel bars where there's willows and cottonwoods and you can look up the river corridor and see that there's just a lot of different kinds of trees and different grasses and all of that provides cover and shade. Uh, so one of the big water quality impairments in Montana is temperature. And in the Swan watershed, we only have one impaired stream and temperature is not our, not our problem here. We're really lucky to have a lot of groundwater upwelling as well as a lot of shade. And that's part of why we get to have species like bull trout that really need that cold water. Over in the sand, there's an abundance of different 
tracks and it's a little hard to see from here but it looks like a bear has been walking through and could be any number of things. We have river otters uh, that we see regularly here and elk, white-tailed deer, mountain lions, black bears, grizzly bears all certainly use this, use this habitat. Ask Rebecca what some of the main elements that would negatively impact the health of a riparian corridor. Human impacts primarily in this area and I would say uh, across the state, often it's roads. We, we develop roads uh, to access, in, in this case, logging this area, uh, the Swan Valley, every other section at one point was owned by Plum Creek Timber Company. And so there is an abundance of roads and a lot of them are built next to creeks and, and streams. Um, by having those roads so near a water source that can cause sedimentation uh, to run off into the streams uh, that can cover what would be really good spawning gravels and so that's that's how it impacts the stream uh, for fish and, and macroinvertebrates. So uh, that's that's definitely the one that we probably see the most is really that um, development of, of roads and that also impacts terrestrial species like grizzly bears. So when the Montana Legacy project happened, uh, that was part of the impetus of that, was trying to uh, buy that every other section of land to preserve it for conservation. And being in a, the core of grizzly bear recovery habitat, being able to um, have less of an impact on the, on the bears by closing those roads uh, for, so it, they just now have minimal use. Some of them are available, for instance, for fire treatment or weeds, uh, weed treatment, but mostly uh, it's non-motorized. As Rebecca was standing literally in the water of Elk Creek during our conversation on this hot July day, she was observing the plant growth around us in this riparian area that they and the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes have worked so hard to restore here within the Elk Creek Conservation Area. A beautiful wave of emotion came over at Rebecca in witnessing the new growth of cottonwood saplings in the sandbars at our feet, which seeing multiple generations of cottonwoods is a great indicator of a healthy riparian area. So I get so excited like a little kid to be out here in, in one of the things about a healthy riparian corridor is um, being able to see these little baby cottonwoods out in the stream and on the gravel bars. And, and they are an example of how what we may consider disaster is just our own perspective because from disaster comes this growth. So by allowing a stream to move across its whole floodplain and get into flood stages, um, that is how cottonwood trees, you know, disperse and, and can create their next generations. And I hope that that's one of the things that we can learn is, is that by controlling or trying to control a waterway, we're actually inhibiting, you know, the, the next generations. And I think it's, it's like a metaphor for the earth. The more that we try to control what's happening, you know, we're ultimately removing things for the next generations. And so the more that we can try to return to natural process, and I think that's uh, 
That's the thing with restoration. We can't go backwards, but we can um, return to a more natural process and allow natural processes to happen and to learn from those and, and learn how to become resilient after disaster. There was this great exercise that we did with uh, like kindergarten through fifth graders when, one time in an educational uh, setting that I was in where we took terracotta flower pots and put them in a paper bag and the kids would drop them on the ground or crush them. And then we took them back into the classroom and glued them back together. And some kids, you know, they would crumble apart. Some, if they only had a few cracks, they were easy to keep together. Some would come together, but they wouldn't entirely hold water. And it was just this great demonstration that restoration doesn't mean that you're putting it back together in exactly the same way, but that you can put things back together in a way that is functional. And then from that function, you know, becomes its own changed environment and that's that's okay you know there's examples in southwest montana where creating an artificial environment from irrigation for instance has increased the wildlife diversity on that landscape tenfold from what it had been so it's not that the human effect is always negative there's just unintended consequences and sometimes those are great and spectacular uh, sometimes they come at a cost so that's just all part of it but this is just a special little place where the stream is cold and clear and there's you know babies and, and old ancient cottonwoods right there all together and and I guess that uh, that sort of crowding of all the different generations around the table that's when there's the most joy when you've got all the generations around the table, in, in the environment and, and at the collaboration table. Getting everyone around it for that common good is so important. I have spent, you know, my adult life in this incredible state and to be in the crown is <laughs> amazing. <laughs> so I think that's, you know, if, if anything, it's the, it's the passion. People's passion coupled with science. If we could all just come together, we could do anything. I just hope more people just recognize that coming together is the only way that we're going to get anywhere. And rural communities... I think really show that, you know, they understand even in the, you know, you might be completely politically opposed, but somebody's house is burning down, your enemy is going to be the first one there to help put it out, you know, and why does it take tragedy for us to come together to put out fires? Like, how about we come together to prevent the proverbial fire? I just think that the only way we're going to make it as a species is to come together. Thank you so much to Rebecca Ramsey for speaking with us. You can find out more about Swan Valley Connections at swanvalleyconnections.org. You can also follow them on Facebook and Instagram. 
and sign up for their announcements about events and opportunities for the public to learn about the landscape. Things that are interesting and important for everyone, not just those who are residents here. These are things such as speaker events, community volunteer days, citizen science, and cool field courses for all ages, like how to read wildlife tracks. We encourage you to check out the other four episodes which hear from other voices in the Sealy Swan region. Also check out lifeintheland.org where you can find the film featuring these voices from the Sealy Swan, as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Please reach out if you'd like to screen any of the films for free at your workshop or gathering. Thank you all for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of the Salish, Kalispell, Kootenai, Blackfeet, and many other indigenous tribes that interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. Thank you to Peyton Butler for editing assistance on this episode and to Katie Sprout for production assistance in the field. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more stories that create connections around a thriving planet for all. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you all for listening and for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible completely through donation support. We'd like to thank the following generous supporters, Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Minelands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winna Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Park Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Wooded, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, the Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. You can support future Life in the Land work with a tax-deductible contribution at lifeintheland.org.